0: This is the L2 Capital Podcast with hedge fund manager, Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone,
1: and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Vimal Gore, head of Bond, Income and Defensive Strategies at Pendle Group. I attended a conference at the beginning of May and Vimal was one of the speakers. He was actually, in my opinion, the best speaker of the day, so I had to stop him on his way out to ask him to come to to this podcast. And he very kindly agreed to do so. So, Vimal, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here and talk to you again.
2: Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak today. Thank you.
1: Um, Vimo, could you please tell us a little bit about the Pendle Group?
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Pendle Group is, um, is an independent asset manager. Uh, we're separately listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, and we run about $100 billion of assets. Generally, the Pendle Group, focuses, we own Hambro in the UK, J.O. Hambro Capital Management, and there's about 50 billion run out of there and about 50 billion run out of Pendle, Australia. Uh, My team, which is a bond, income, and defensive strategies team, employs about 15 full-time investment professionals and run about $20 billion. And we run them across cash, uh, aggregate strategies, everything through to hedge funds, and we also have a a multi-asset long volatility fund, which we launched recently.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, you mentioned in your speech and also in an article that was released in the Financial Review soon after your speech, something very interesting, the illusion of liquidity. With apparently so much money in the system today, would you care to explain to us what you mean by that?
2: Um, I think this illusion of liquidity works on so many different levels right now. Um, As you mentioned, there is massive um, amounts of money that's been pumped into the system really since the GFC by numerous quantitative easing programs that have um, been conducted by various central banks across the world. But when you look through the markets, you can see pockets of illiquidity um, popping up at all points. For example, we had the flash crash in the Japanese. Yen earlier this year, where we'll it moved materially in one day and then bounce back. You can look at the equity markets where. You know, about 50% of the volume is that of the last hour of trading, which is all around algorithmic accounts. You can look at the um, the disappearing of liquidity that happens around economic numbers as the algos pull back. And then you can look at um, the problems you're seeing across cross-currency basis. And even in the front end of the US now, problems with the plumbing of the system, which are indicative of a shortage of, for example, right now, a shortage of dollars. So while at the surface, the markets look to be very liquid and be functioning very well, all you need to do is just go slightly down one level. and You can see all of these issues around liquidity that are popping up. And the, the key one for us right now is this illusion of liquidity in the U.S. money markets. And when you're beginning to see these plumbing problems push up, and they're indicating quite clearly a shortage of dollars, and that's really to do with the fact that the Fed is still tightening policy. Even though they've indicated there'll be cutting rates and policy is likely to be eased at the end of this month and materially over the next couple of years, you've got to remember the Fed is still tightening policy by conducting its quantitative tightening uh, policy, which is going to run until September. So not only are we talking about shifting to an easing cycle, but we're currently in a tightening cycle. And that's having all sorts of ramifications right now. Interesting. So I've
1: got a couple of questions for you. Um, uh, the yield curve is flattening, and in some parts of the curve, there is already an inversion. And uh, normally, an inversion of the yield curve means a recession is on the horizon. Do you see a recession happening in the US? And uh, what will be the impact of this uh, yield curve flattening or inverting for the emerging markets and high-yield bonds?
2: Um, you, you're right. We've seen, we've seen a material flattening of the yield curve. Uh, in the US, and we've seen it inverted in numerous parts throughout the curve now, specifically in the front end, where you've got um, very large expectations of rate hikes coming through in the in the short-dated part of the curve. Um, it's normal for the yield curve to flatten um, as it believes the Fed is over-tightened. And that's because the Fed controls the front end of the curve, but the back end of the, is, uh, the curve is controlled by supply and demand, i.e. the the ebb and flow of market participants, and they've been pushing bond yields lower. And so current 10-year bond yields just around 2%. Now, it's normal now and um, for the Fed to start cutting rates and the yield curve to start steepening. And what's really interesting is you're already beginning to see that. If you look at the dynamics of the curve, what's happening is the spot curve um, continues to flatten, but the forward curve is steepening. And that's a dynamic you... You often see at the end of a cycle, when just before the Fed starts cutting, and you see be beginning to see things like, you know, twos, five, six month forwards, and ones, twos, two year forward. All of these kind of forward um, expressions beginning to steepen up now, and that happens just before rate cutting cycle. Um, my my personal view is the Fed is over tightened. The the belief is that because the Fed was coming from zero and they've hiked rates up to two and a half percent that that increment isn't too large. But you've got to remember the size of the quantitative easing packages that we saw in the US, effectively, the US was running large negative real interest rates. And the shadow, I think it was the Atlanta Fed, have a shadow rate, and that was down about three, three, three and a half percent negative. And so you can say, well, the Fed's hiked rates by nearly six percent in a short period, 2016 to now and that rate of change has enough to slow the economy and you could see all the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy slowing so you've had that is the first part you've had the the rate of change of fed funds and the the monetary policy in the u.s tightening a lot at the same time as you've had um the um, a, a large amount of credit that's been issued into the system. And so you've got this, this problem where Fed funds have been tightening, monetary policy has been tightening, interest rate-sensitive sectors have been slowing, and then you've got coupled with a trade war. And so now you've got this slowing of the economy, which I worry is actually embedded in the US, and all the forward-looking indicators I'm looking at tell me the US should continue to slow from here. And people look and say, well, okay, unemployment rate is low and the um, wages are picking up, but that's late, like late-cycle phenomenon. You always see those in the U.S. You always see the unemployment rates pick uh, at the lowest before you enter a recessions, And you'll see wages largely the highest before you enter a recession because they're lagging indicators. So I look at it now and say so I think there's a very strong chance if the Fed, if the U.S. isn't in recession now, it's going to be there soon. And secondly, the implications of that is that a slowing um, global growth environment, I think, is, is upon us with the U.S. slowing. Uh, All the data we've seen out of Asia has been weak. We saw the growth numbers out of China yesterday were the weakest for something over 20 years. And we know that all the data in Europe is weak. So I don't see there being any growth engines in the world right now. And that has to have an impact on, one, emerging markets, as you mentioned, but two, Given the size of the credit issuance we've seen number a number of years, and the big bubble that's been built up in credit securities, I'd expect that to impact credit securities as the U.S. continues to slow and corporate balance sheets become to get a little bit more stressed.
1: Do, do you think the the U.S. and the rest of the developed world will follow the same path as Japan?
2: Um, I think we largely have, um, and the reason for that is the demographics. So, you know, a large part of what's happening in the U.S. now has been um, due to the baby boomers and the demographic path the U.S. is following. Um, and ultimately, you know, we can look at it and say, well, bond yields have been declining for a 40-year period now. Um, debt levels have been going up for, not not for the same amount of time, but materially over the last 10 or 20 years. And we, we're reaching a situation where the economy does look similar to Japan. Now, Japan is conducting its own... Um, rectification of the system and remedy of the situation which is effectively stealth MMT. And at the end of this cycle, when the US, when the US clearly has entered recession, the Fed responds to that and exhausts its limited room to cut monetary policy, which is only two and a half percent. Well, then at some point, you would expect MMT and fiscal policy to come much more into the fore and the baton to be passed from monetary to fiscal. Interesting.
1: Well, uh, you you, you just answered my my next question, but uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I know you have spoken to to Bill Mitchell recently, so I have to ask you this. Mm. Uh, MMT is really coming? And if so, how do we need to think about it?
2: Um, Yeah, We we had a session with Bill Mitchell in our office just a couple of weeks ago, which is incredibly illuminating. Um, I'm in no doubt that that MMT is coming, really because the monetary policy lever across the whole world is largely exhausted. So you look at Japan and you look at Europe now, they've got weakening economies, they need to engage more so in the currency wars that are happening and being led by Trump, but they have very limited ability to respond because monetary policy is exhausted. So, you know, they can do a little bit more QE, they could change collateral lines, they could do tweaks at the margin, but it's not going to be large scale. What they need to do is to have fiscal stimulus. Um, And the narrative in the U.S. about MMT has gone completely mainstream now. Um, So I'm no doubt that it's coming. It's just a question of when and how. And I think that will be when monetary policy has exhausted itself in the U.S. And I expect interest rates to be cut from 2.5% to 0 Sometime by the end of next year, and the baton to be passed at that point, and that and that will get increased um, talk and uh, rhetoric around this as we come into the U.S. presidential election. But at its core, the premise of MMT is really what quite compelling, uh, you know, and, and it, it centres around this whole ability of the government to 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 use up spare capacity in the in the um, underlying economy and it works for economies which issue that have their own currency and issue debt in their own currency and i look around australia which has a massive amount of underemployment under of labor and a lot of jobs that could need filling and i question you know why would it be such a bad thing for the government to employ those people on short term contracts to clean parks clean up graffiti do short term jobs that would benefit the whole society as a whole and add to the productive capital. I mean, I, I don't think that would probably be a problem. The problem with MMT is effectively you're giving the license to a government to pump fiscal stim- spending and stimulus into an economy until it uses up its its um, spare capacity. And the, when you know it's used up its spare capacity is when inflation starts picking up, and that's when the government is supposed to take its foot off the accelerator and gently tap on the brakes. But the problem is, as we know, is that that relying on governments to, to do that is um, is probably a dangerous thing. And therefore, I get worried about MMT being pushed to its limits and beyond, and therefore and, uh, resulting in an inflationary regime at some point in the future.
1: Okay, so, so what are the risks in the market uh, right now that you believe people are not paying attention to?
2: um i think it's around the slowing of global growth the 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 uh, narrative in the markets right now is that is that interest rates have fallen and these interest rate falls we've seen in terms of bond yields and the upcoming interest rate cuts we're going to see from central banks across the world are going to be supportive of growth, and that means that growth levels are going to bounce back. And these are effectively insurance rate cuts, um, and that we'll see global growth stabilise these levels or or pick up. Um, I'm in the view that global growth is slowing. Um, trade wars are having an impact. You know, global trade is slowing, and generally we'll see a slowdown in global growth, um, and that necessitates further. Um, you know, rallies in bond yields. And at some point, this slowing of growth will start feeding into real economy, uh, corporate data. And we know that the US corporate sector is as levered as it's ever been in history. And that's something I do worry about. Okay.
1: Cool. And, and do you think people should own gold? Uh, what are your views on gold?
2: Yeah, I like gold on a structural basis. Because if if you believe um, as I do, the interest rates across the world are coming to zero, um, but that's not going to be enough. And then there's going to be a handover from monetary policy to fiscal policy. Well, in that environment, um, the whole questioning, yeah, there's a lot of questions asked about the fiat currency system, and so gold as an established store of value. Um, so I think that having some exposure to gold in your portfolio is is a prudent thing. And I think having some exposure to cryptocurrencies as well. Um, But I don't know which cryptocurrencies are, are going to be the beneficiary because, you know, with with the new proposed currency coming in from Facebook and the proposed legislation the US is looking at, I don't know which you can make a strong argument that Facebook Libra currency is going to supersede Bitcoin but it might not be um, allowed to come to fruition. So there's a number of questions. I do know that you, you, you need, if possible, to diversify away from financial assets. Um, and I think real assets and, and gold and some kind of crypto exposure is a good thing. Cool.
1: And uh, moving on to Australia, uh, Australia has been doing well for over two decades now and uh, interrupted growth every year for 25 or, or 26 years. And uh, property has been a good investment during this period. But some say there's a bubble in the sector.
2: Do you agree? It's difficult because, you know, living in Australia, you don't realize – if you don't live in Australia, you don't realize how uh, focused the entire economy is on the property market. Um, It has been incredibly good, strongly performing asset and a great store of value. It tends not to fall in Australia. We grow out of our, undervalu- uh, our overvaluations by sideways pricing. And the, the property price growth is supported by a large immigration. And so you've always got this need to develop new properties and house prices to move on the back of the immigration place. I do worry, though, that the size of the debt levels we're having and the fact we haven't had a recession for, um, as you mentioned, a very long time in Australia do make us a little more susceptible to a property slowdown. Um, I had expected property to fall. Um, I, I'm not sure and as convinced as the, the consensus and the market is, is that a 10% fall in Sydney is sufficient and the valuations are now compelling again. And we've seen auction clearance rates pick up and on the back of you know interest rate cuts from the, the RBA plus the fiscal stimulus from the government. But I, I still think that the savings rate buildup that we have in front of us will continue to pressure property prices. And I personally think they're more likely to go down over the next year than, than rise.
1: Okay, okay. And uh, in, in terms of trade war, uh, the President Trump and, and President for life Xi Jinping are engaged in a trade war now. Um, what do you think will be the most likely outcome of this trading war? And, and what impact will it have on the markets?
2: Um, I think it's a fundamental reset of the of the international trading system. Um, for the last 30, 40 years, we've been in a world that's seen increasing globalization and now, uh, we're beginning to roll that back. So, so the US companies are looking to have to onshore again, uh, which is a massive endeavor for them to do so. Um, and they're trying to circumvent um, companies. Uh, they're trying to circumvent, for example, China going to Vietnam and exporting through there. So, there's a complete reset coming on that I don't think will be solved by just one trade deal. I think this is a generational um, shift that's happening, and the countries that sit in the middle will be ultimately forced to choose between alliances with um, the US and alliances with China. And I think we've only started that process and ultimately um, it has to be quite disruptive for world trade and global GDP growth.
1: Okay. Do, do you think the presidents are trying to resolve the the whole thing at once? Not only the, the trade war but the South Ch- uh, China Sea problems, the Korean issue and everything at once or, or and they're throwing it all at the trade war? Uh, account.
2: Um, I th- yeah, I think the problem is, is they both have very limited manoeuvre. I mean, the the stance that Trump has taken with China is the first bipartisan. Um, issue that's gained a lot of support so it makes no sense for him to pull back now and there is a prevailing feeling within the u.s that they have been cheated for a number of years and that um, but within china china's playing a long game and so it feels it can wait out the u.s so i don't expect there to be any material softening in the stance from either side over the medium term okay okay
1: in regards to europe do you see problems intensifying this year and next i mean there's no shortage um, of, of risks there right i mean Brexit, Spanish and Italian banks, Greece that uh, is on and off We now
2: hours talking about all the problems Europe have I mean ultimately there's a couple of things that uh, we need to focus on here. One, that European growth is largely a derivative of Chinese growth now and that's because the the, pri- the largest driver of the change of European growth is German exports and they largely go out to Asia and China. And obviously as China's importing less, the slowdown that we've seen in Europe has been, uh, uh, unusually for Europe, centred in Germany, and Germany suffering more than other countries. Now, until we get a situation where Europe can focus on its own domestic demand and consumption, we're going to continue to have this problem. But... It's a very difficult situation to do so when you have all these large fiscal deficits and pooling, et cetera, these questions. And I think that there's a recognition that the system is fundamentally broken and can't move forward. And I think that's the reason why Lagarde was appointed to the ECB after coming from the IMF, where she's a negotiator. And there's a lot of things that need to be cleaned up in Europe. And the banking system, as you mentioned, is one of the key ones. Um, so I think at some point the whole banking system, needs to be cleaned up, good banks, bad banks, maybe a nationalisation of banks, maybe a wipeout of shareholder capital, whatever it might be. But there needs to be some resolution to the banking problems in Europe um, before we can start pooling debts and growing out of this crisis. But I think this is going to be a long, drawn-out problem that that we deal with over the next five to 10 years, and ultimately it will bring low growth over that period as well. Okay,
1: so, so given everything we discussed, uh, how would one position his or, or her portfolio to profit from the outcomes you mentioned?
2: Oh, um, that's a good question. I think a diversified portfolio um, is, is obviously the key thing here. Um, I have a strong preference to favour bonds because um, my belief, as I've mentioned, is the world economy is slowing, interest rates are coming down, and while ultimately the world and central banks will run out of monetary policy ability to move rates, um, they've still got a lot to go. For example, the US has still got two and a half percent to cut rates, and that's a, a material return, um, you know, return your investment by buying bonds. So I like being overweight bonds here, um, really predominantly in the economies which have the willingness and the ability to cut rates, which are uh, the US, Australia, New Zealand. I think you need to be um, underweight or cautious of credit bonds. While they've been performing very well, um, I, I worry significantly about the size of the market, the leverage that exists in the market, and the vulnerability to the corporate sector when the inevitable slowing in the U.S. economy uh, broadens out. And I get worries about the profit cycle and the ability to support those high levels of debt. Okay,
1: now Vima, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I will say to our listeners that if they ever have a chance to listen to one of your speeches, don't miss it. They are well worth it. Thank you.
2: Thank you and I appreciate you having me on today.
1: A pleasure, thank you.
0: like this podcast feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues we appreciate your time support and your feedback you can follow Marcelo lopez on twitter at ma lopez 1975 the information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such you should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast l2 capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast